Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with the brilliant and humane psychologist Daniel Kahneman. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. There you go. Great. Okay. I just poured this water for you. Thank you. Pull right up to the table a little closer for me. Nice. Okay. Great. And if you put those headphones on, you can say hello to Krista. There right here. Okay. Uh, hi, Krista. This is Danny. I apologize. <laughs> I'm normally, I'm pathologically punctual, so this right. really should be happening. I, I but, believe you. I believe you. Good. <laughs> and it, not to worry. It's still amazing that we can be, that I can be sitting in a in front of a microphone in Minnesota, and you can be in Manhattan, and we yeah, can have this yeah, conversation. That's, yeah, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad we are, have been able to make this happen, and uh, just it's really an honor to sit down with you. Come on, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> But I won't embarrass you anymore. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Okay. Do you do you have any um, questions for me before we start? No. Okay. Right. I mean, I'm sure you'll be editing this. Right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, we'll we'll so. have a real conversation, and then <coughs> um, and then we will make it work for a, a radio hour. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. Great. I am. Uh, hold on one sec. Let me check. Chris, do you need any more levels, or um, uh, could can you hear Chris? No. Uh, can you give us some um, levels? You know, tell tell me what you had for breakfast. Something mundane. You're asking me. Yes. Just okay. so just so Chris can get some levels. I had oatmeal <laughs> okay. and, and espresso. Okay. Um, and where where were you coming from today? Well, I was coming from a restaurant where I had arranged with a friend, assuming that we I was meeting you here. Yeah. I mean, at three o'clock. Yeah. So I oh. was coming from Blue Water Grill on Union Square. Okay. Highly recommended. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we can begin. Um, I you know I always I have a question I always ask. Um, Whoever I'm speaking with, which is about w- wondering about um, the religious or spiritual background of one's childhood, and people define that in many different ways. I wonder how you would start uh, answering that question. Well, um, I think the only serious interaction I had with God was during World War II. We were in hiding. And uh, it was a very tense period. We were in hiding in France. And um, and I was actually sleeping, it's hard to reconstruct now, next to my uh, parents' bed, though I was nine. And I would end my day with a prayer where I would ask for just one extra day. Mm 
Hmm. And, you know, since God was very busy and all that. But then around age 14, I think, I... I discovered an argument that completely cured me of any religious impulse. So, and I haven't thought about it since. Okay. Well, I also think the spiritual background of a childhood has many elements which aren't necessarily about religion. Um, you know, even when when you talk about how you became a psychologist, and um, yeah, I mean, I feel like you brought you brought kind of psychology. You brought you brought, in fact, psychological inquiry to philosophical questions, as you describe. Even like here's something someplace you wrote. Um, I was discovering I was more interested in what made people believe in God than I was in whether God existed, and I was more curious about the origins of people's peculiar convictions about right and wrong than I was about ethics. I found that really interesting. Yeah, I couldn't say it better. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I have to say, I'm also very intrigued about how you talk about your mother was a very intelligent gossip, and that that also was a way that you came to this experience, this sense that people are endlessly complicated and interesting. Well, that's, you know, my mother was really a very strong influence on me through... Uh, Maybe through gossip, I think. Mm. I mean, there was a lot of intelligent conversation about people, and uh, and people were seemed to be surprising and interesting, interesting to talk about. In fact, I mean, you know, it was politics or people were the, mm. the subjects that I was exposed to, or or Germans. Yeah, right. And I mean that that background of your family um, was was steeped in that drama of the Holocaust. And I mean, you even have told quite a few stories about discovering the many sides to every person in interactions that your family had with Germans uh, be- mm-hmm. before the liberation. Well, I mean, uh, the main story I've been telling, uh, which uh, was in Paris, and actually in Neuilly, which is close to Paris. And I And that was 1941, I was seven, the Germans had, uh, I mean, the Jews were wearing a yellow star, and a curfew had been declared for six o'clock, I think, for Jews. And I'd gone to play with a friend, and and I was late. Uh, So I turned my sweater inside out, and I walked home. And very close to home, actually, I went back to that place last year Hmm. out of curiosity to see, match it against my memories. I saw on that street uh, a German facing me, coming toward me, and the street was otherwise deserted. And that German was wearing a black uniform, and that was the uniform of the SS, and I knew enough to know that they were the worst of the worst. And... Hmm. And then he beckoned me and, and picked me up. And I remember being quite afraid that he would see inside my sweater that I was wearing a yellow star. Um, and then he hugged me uh, very tight, and he put me down and took out his wallet, showed me a picture of a little boy, and gave me some money. Uh, and. And we went our separate ways. That was an impressive story yeah. for me. Yeah. 
you know, it um, it it's. I like to look at um, I like I like to consider all kinds of questions of our time with a long view of time, and it's you know starting with the Enlightenment with this particular intensity. Um, we 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 ins- we wanted to insist that we are rational, logical creatures, or that and that we could create rational, logical systems. And it's so you know it's fascinating for us to be talking about all the things that happened, and there was much more, especially in the mid twentieth century, um, which bespoke our irrationality. Um, and yet, even this this idea of rationality and of and and many of our disciplines. Um, formed around that presumption, uh, and certainly economics. Um, And then you have become, in very recent memory, um, you know, you and and your colleague have been called the prophets of irrationality, but people people, people sort of reasserting this reality that we might have seen all along. Well, uh, it's it's a description I deplore, actually, because Mm. we had relatively little to say about irrationality, which I take as sort of impulsively doing destructive or self-destructive things. Uh, This is not what we were talking about. Right, right. The the concept of rationality is a technical, mathematical concept. It's a logic. And it it is actually completely not possible for a finite human mind uh, to be rational or to obey the axioms of rationality. You'd have to know too much. Mm. You'd have to... The the difficulty of being consistent in all your beliefs is impossible. And if you're not consistent in all your beliefs, you can be trapped in an inconsistency and then you're not rational. Mm. So the the concept of rationality, the technical concept of rationality, is psychologically nonsense. Mm-hmm. And... And all we said was basically that. It was, you know, we can find counterexample to that very extreme model. Uh, I don't think we ever claim to have demonstrated that people are irrational. I really don't like that label. Yeah, oh, that's interesting because that word is really thrown around in, in, what, in how people write about you. But would you say, I mean, it seems to me that what you did in... in um, social scientific terms is you you um, articulated cognitive rules, not for human irrationality, but but perhaps for this, let's say, this reality that, that we do contradict ourselves, that we are complicated creatures. Well, uh, actually, the, <clears throat> the cognitive rules are, to a large extent, simplifying rules. Mm-hmm. They're ways, they're shortcuts. Yeah. That's why, you know, they're called heuristics sometimes. And and whenever you have a heuristic, you know, you follow a shortcut, from the nature of the shortcut, you know that there are predictable errors. That yeah. is, people who follow that, that shortcut in making a judgment and making their judgments are going to make predictable errors. And that's the structure of the argument that mm. Tversky and I developed. Mm-hmm. And, and we had a lot of fun demonstrating yeah. that that people violated the axioms of rationality. But in fact, you know, that by itself is very easy to do. Uh, our examples were sort of amusing and clever, and and they they impressed people because, because they were highly quotable. 
And they were, they could be summarized in one-liners. Right. So, you know, we earned that label of being prophets of irrationality by doing psychology in an amusing way. <laughs> and Tversky was also another, was he a grandson of East European rabbis? Yes. Yes. <laughs> you also said behavioral economics actually started out in a bar. That was its origin story. Yes, that's <laughs> the origin story. Um, so Emma Sursky and I, we worked on judgment and, and we worked on decision-making. Yeah. And <clears throat> we happened to publish a major paper on decision-making in a journal of economic theory. Now, we didn't publish it in economic theory because we wanted to influence economics. But Econometrica, that's a journal, was the major journal where high-quality papers in decision theory were, were to be published. So that's the one we tried for. This was very important. If we had published in psychology, nobody would have, yeah. in economics, would ever have paid any attention mm -hmm. to it. Now, so we were there... And some economists were paying attention to us. And in that bar, which was in Rochester, as I recall, there was a meeting of cognitive science. And Eric Warner, uh, who was to become the director of the Russell Sage Foundation in New York, but he was then the vice director of Sloan, a big foundation. Mm -hmm. And he invited Amos and, and me to a drink at the bar, and um, and he said there that he wanted to bring together psychology and economics. And I remember what we told him. Uh, we, we told him this was not uh, a topic on which you could spend a lot of money honestly. Mm. So, you know, if a foundation which wants to spend lots of money shouldn't touch this. <laughs> And we also told him that he should give no money to psychologists <laughs> because psychologists were interested in educating economists are not worthy of support. I mean, psychologists should do psychology. Huh. But if there are economists who are interested in psychology, they should be supported. Hmm. And that was the beginning of behavioral economics because the very first grant that Eric Warner gave when he went to the Sloan Foundation and became its director. One of the very first grants was to Richard Thaler, a brilliant young economist, right. to spend a year with me in Vancouver, British Columbia. And, and we published several important papers. I mean, Richard had published before, uh, trying to integrate our work with economics or with his findings on, that challenge economic theory. And... That was the beginning of behavioral economics, in some, according to some accounts. <laughs> was, was clearly this merger um, opened a whole new window, let's say, in economics, um, which then converged very much with the reality that, that everybody could see. D was, was that... Was that conversation, that collaboration, also eye-opening for you? Did it, did it take you to see new things in your field? Oh, yeah. Mm. I mean, I learned a lot of economics through the, 
the conversation and I I learned about the logic of economics. You know, there are concepts in economics like equilibrium, which is a fascinating concept mm. that didn't exist in my kit, you know, in my toolkit of intellectual toolkit. I didn't have that. It's mm. actually hugely important and useful uh, template to have when you look at the world. Right. So I acquired that, I acquired a lot, of, you know, a fair amount of, of economics that I picked up along the way. But I'd like to correct one of the premises of your argument. Mm. And I think behavioral economics, which was largely established by Richard Thaler, um, and he had begun working on it several years before we met, uh, behavioral economics hasn't taken over economics. I mean, most of economics is right. uh, built on the rational model. Yeah. It's just that behavioral economics is no longer despised in, in the economics profession. Some of the best departments in the world are focused on behavioral economics, including Harvard and Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And Richard Thaler was the president of the American Economic Association a couple of years ago. So uh, it's now established. But it hasn't taken over economics. No, I guess I, I I do know that. I guess what I'm pointing at is as a non as a non as a non economist, as a citizen, um, I think that that the that the economy and that event that cultural and economic events, um, especially around two thousand eight, uh, made it very clear. Although, you know, everybody doesn't stop to analyze it this way, but made it very clear that we weren't dealing with a, you know, with a merely rational part of, of our collective life together. So that, so that behavioral economics had a resonance if, any, if anybody was interested um, to pay attention to that in the larger culture. That's interesting because... Uh I would say, you know, my view of the two th- of two thousand and eight mm-hmm. uh, is that it it didn't dem- demonstrate irrationality. You know, the bankers. I mean, there was irrationality among the the people who were buying, you know, who were buying mo- getting mortgages they couldn't afford. They were irrational. The bankers who sold it to them and who packaged them to sell to other bankers, they were acting as rational economic agents in their own self-interest. And so it's not a clear demonstration of the role of irrationality. What 2008 did, uh, in the eyes of the public, and I think in the eyes of many economists, it it reduced the hubris of the economics profession. Right. I mean, it was a failure to predict. It was the failure to predict it is what uh, I think rightly impressed many people about the limitations of economics. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, so we'll, we, we can keep talking about that. I, so let's, I mean, one of the shortcuts that, that, um, that you've now, that now many people, is, it's been part of many people's vocabularies through your book, is thinking fast and slow. So you've taken this, this core idea from your work and, and brought it into... Um, a larger conversation, um, our different ways of thinking system, what you know, what you call system one, system two. So let's, I know you've 
done this a million times, <laughs> but I'd, I think it would be great for you to just give a brief description of this distinction you make between fast thinking and slow thinking. Well, uh in the first place, you know, I should, uh, an important disclaimer, mm. I did not make the distinction, and I didn't even coin the term System 1 and System 2. They pre-existed my work. I picked them up because I saw that they, were, they would help us resolve many controversies in my field. Mm. But uh, the idea, which is, I think, I, f I find it compelling, and many other people find it compelling, is that there is a very big difference in what happens in your mind when I say 2 plus 2 and what happens in your mind when I say 24 times 17. Yeah. That these are radically different ways in which the mind works. And one of them, 2 plus 2, evokes 4. You don't control it. It's effortless. It, it's something that happens to you. In the same sense, by the way, that when you look around you in the world, the world is something that happens to you. you. In fact, your brain constructs it, but you're not aware of the fact that your brain constructs it. It's the world. Mm. Now, 24 times 17 is completely different. It, it involves a decision to engage. It requires effort. It is mental work. You can decide not to do it, whereas you cannot decide not to think of four when you hear two plus two. So there are many differences between these two ways of thinking. Right. It turns out emotions are closest to system one. And most reasoning and deliberate choice is carried out in system two or by system two. So... System two is not necessarily rational, and it's certainly not all-knowing. What makes this story, I think, interesting uh, to some people is that it's the idea that in many situations, it's not system two that's in charge. Subjectively, yeah. when we think of ourselves, of what we experience, we are, ident we are identified with our system two with the conscious being that thinks, the conscious being right, that, that right, you are. Right. But in fact, system one uh, runs the show a lot of the time, except you never know it. So I use the metaphor of uh, system two being a secondary actor who thinks that, uh, that he is the star, um, because that's what we're aware of. But in fact, the, the miracle you know, is that uh, we have a system that delivers something when you say two plus two. We have a system that can allow you to drive while conducting a conversation. Mm. And that actually also allows you to stop the conversation when you need to because uh, you need to pay full attention to the driving. So, so the, the conversation between system one and system two is the interesting part. The fact that system two very often basically rationalizes sort of impressions that are generated by System 1. But occasionally, System 2 can take over, and occasionally, System 2 can prevent mm -hmm. mistakes or intuitions Have or impressions that originate in System 1. So mm -hmm. it's a complex interaction between these two. Now, the, the idea of systems, I should make clear, uh, 
It's a, it's a complicated terminology, and it, many psychologists were deeply shocked by my use of it. Of the, ter of the term system? Because there the is an important rule in mm. psychology that you are really not supposed to explain the behavior of people by introducing small people inside their head and <laughs> using the small people to explain the behavior of, of the whole people. Okay. That is really forbidden. It's prohibited. It is. It violates uh, the rules of the game. So, well, what about the ego mean, and the id and the super ego? Aren't oh, those but little they are, people? You know, they are psychoanalysis, okay. and they are not. They are, you know, they are not the kind of thing that we okay. academic uh, research-oriented psychologists use. Okay. So, for me, very clearly, I use the words system one and system two. I use them as agents. As little people, really, with a personality, and they do things in system one and system two, and they talk to each other, and, and they, they control each other. But this is really a metaphor. It's a metaphor for the fact that there are two broad families of thought processes, mm. and some people call them type one and type two. But I find type one and type two boring. <laughs> uh, the... The idea that you have systems is much more psychologically appealing, and it's much easier to understand the way the mind works when you use those two systems, even if there are no systems in the mind that are talking to each other. Mm. I, it's interesting to me. So, so system one is, as you say, it's it's where it's emotional. It's it's we talk, we walk. Um, um, but it's also where it's things that ha that we that we that we that ha come automatically. It's it's behavior that we're that's not reflective, really. But um, that's also where highly skilled instincts reside. When so that if you are very good at something, if it's it's what you do, yeah, it's your mean, craft, right? That 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 also that also becomes part of system one. It becomes more yeah, automatic. It, it fits all the characteristics. I mean, in mm -hmm. fact, you are not born knowing that two plus two should lead to four. Right. It's something okay. that you yeah. learn. Yeah. And you're not born knowing how to drive. Mm -hmm. It is something that initially demands all your attention. Mm -hmm. But gradually, as you become better at it, yeah. it demands less and less attention. And eventually, when you're a good driver, you can drive most of the time while really thinking very little about it. So, you know, in these metaphorical terms, uh, you would say that system one does the driving, leaving system two free to do other things. And it's interesting, too, I mean, you, you, um, you note that there's something quite miraculous about how this, how so much of what we do becomes automatic, but that we, that actually, that this effortful thinking, this, delib this ability to be deliberative is more rare, but we, we pay more attention when we do it, and we think we do it more often, that we that we privilege it somehow. Um, well, uh, in, in you know, it's, it, it's the only thing we know. Mm -hmm. That is, uh, efforts and attention are very closely related to consciousness. So, what you're right. conscious of, what you're aware of, yeah. is our operations of system two mostly. Yeah. Uh, and when you recognize and. With system two, especially when you re reason in sequence, you know, when you multiply 17 by 24 in your head or even not in your head, you're operating in sequence. 
in and and you're aware of the sequence yeah. so you're aware of your thinking but in system 1 you are re- usually when system 1 operates you're not aware of the thinking you know this is one of the definitions of intuition it's actually a very common one mm-hmm. it is that it's knowing something without knowing why you know it mm-hmm. and and I have no doubt, you know, most of my work has been to question intuition, but some people have it. And, you know, drivers have it. Uh, all of us have it in many social situations. Okay. So we become skilled. And when we're skilled, uh, what used to be effortful and system two becomes automatic right. and system one. What used to be slow becomes fast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something interesting too. Although we again we prize this ability we have and maybe overestimate how much we are deliberative and making really complicated uh, conscious decisions. But you say one of you say the most important quality of System One is that it can't be turned off. The most important quality of System Two is that it is it is lazy. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is that very frequently. We we trust ourselves, we trust our impressions, we trust uh, thoughts that occur to us as if they were true. And uh, in that way, uh, we don't put a lot of effort. It's easiest to um, explain that by using an example. By now, a very famous example, it's a puzzle, uh, where you tell people... A bat and a ball together cost a dollar ten. The bat costs ten cents. Oh, I'm sorry. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Right. Now, what is interesting about this example is that just about everybody reports that a number came to their mind immediately, and that number is ten cents. But ten cents is wrong. So it's five cents at the answer, and it's very easy to check that ten cents is wrong because ten cents plus a dollar ten is a dollar twenty. So that could not be the answer. What is fascinating about this particular problem, which has attracted a vast amount of it, of attention in psychology and uh, has made Shane Frederick, my friend Shane Frederick, uh, a hero to many, uh, but. Interesting about this problem is that, uh, as I recall, roughly 50% of Harvard students fail it. Yeah, yeah. So what that means, when somebody fails that item, you know something about them. You know they didn't check, because if they had checked, they wouldn't have said that. And that's what I mean by a lazy system, too. It's a system that gets a, a suggestion from system one and endorses it and passes it on. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, it's lazy. It, any system that operates according to a principle of least effort is, is lazy by this definition. And the mind, in terms of its investment of attention, mm-hmm. operates according to the principle of least effort. We, we tend to do everything with as little effort as possible. And some of us are much lazier than others. Right, but and it, it's also true, um, as you describe in many places that I mean, and as you said, I mean, this is well that well that this is um, 
that delib that this deliberative thinking, this system too, is also a place that can can correct and um, even kind of kind of sometimes save us from our instincts. Um, uh, this is a part of ourselves we like to be proud of. This con- this this, uh, this self. Um, do you, do you think that knowing, having lived and inhabited this this work, this research, and this thinking you do, uh, does that make you differently? Do you work differently with your with your with your systems? No, does, <laughs> no is your system too is just as lazy no, as mine? No. <laughs> I suppose possibly lazier. I mean, oh. I know that uh, you know. I I fall for most of these of the errors that we mm-hmm. wrote about. I mean, and we wrote about them and we studied them because we observed Emma Tversky and I that we were falling for them. Mm-hmm. But what what's interesting is that forty years later, you know, I still fall for them. Mm-hmm. So when I'm not alert and I'm. Just this morning, I was in, involved in a conversation with a, with a colleague on what can be done to correct people's thinking. And my conclusion uh, that I put, you know, I try to defend in thinking fast and slow, is that it's very difficult. You know, highly educated people have habits of checking themselves have habits of thinking more slowly. Mm -hmm. And they also have templates that they can apply so that they recognize situations in ways that that involve more logic and, you know, that um, correspond more to facts. But to say that your intuitive machinery has changed because of learning or experience... I think this can happen, but it's very rare and not very general. You learn skills. The skills are specific. But the associative memory doesn't change the way it operates when you learn a few skills. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to, I, I want to talk a little bit more about... Uh, well, so let me, let me start this way, about kind of 2008 and how these ideas or this reality bounces around in our collective life. Um, You know, I started a radio show in the early 2000s about the subject of faith and ethics. And um, the show has evolved. Um, Also, the content of the show has evolved. But when when I was saying back then, or actually really right before the turn of the century, that I thought we needed to have spaces in public life and in media where we discuss this aspect of human life in, with intelligence and with com- with the complexity that it has in life. One of the things that came back at me is, well, we can't really, that doesn't really belong in public life and in news because it's in, it's an entirely subjective part of life. It's irrational. Um, but then, you know, I have felt like as we move through this century... Um, you know, and and I feel like as as we move, however integrated or not behavioral economics is into the entire field of economics, I I do think we saw it. It was hard to argue after two thousand eight that that economic behavior and also the discipline of economics is entirely logical is an entirely logical and ra- rational aspect of our life together. Um, and I think it's very it's very it's impossible to argue that. Um, about our political lives as well, globally now. 
Um, and I just I wonder how you and I think also you know our our lives with technology um, privilege fast thinking and reacting. Um, I'm just so curious about how you inhabit you know this moment um, with this science with this scientific perspective that you have. Well. Um, the, that was a big question, I know. and there is a lot to say about yeah. it. Uh, in the first place, I'd like to observe that the term behavior economics, as it is used today, the kind of thing that behavior econom- economists are supposed to do, that's really social psychology. And, and the people who practice it, the economists who practice it, are well aware of it. Yeah. Uh, the, the famous work on nudges by Dick Thaler and Cass Sunstein, you know, both close friends of mine, yeah. that, that very famous work is really not economics of any kind. It is social psychology. Mm-hmm. It's principles about how to affect behavior. So, so much for... Uh, and, and it is remarkable... And some people find it sad that social psychology had to disguise itself as economics uh, <laughs> before it had an impact be on the seriously. culture. Yeah. And that's because economics uh, has a better brand than, than psychology. Yeah. So that's one thing, uh, one remark I wanted to make. A completely different one, which uh, occurs to me because you mentioned politics, is that one of the important realizations, you know, that come from thinking of the world in terms of system one and system two is that we do not have beliefs. Our beliefs do not come from where we think they came. Mm -hmm. And let me elaborate on that sentence. When I ask you about something that you believe in, whether you believe or don't believe in climate change or or whether you believe in some political uh, position or other, as soon as I raise the question why you have answers, reasons come to your mind. But the way that I would see this is that the reasons may have very little to do with the real causes of your beliefs. So the the real cause of your belief in a political position, whether conservative or, or radical left, the real causes are rooted in your personal history. Mm-hmm. They're rooted in who are the people that you trusted and what they seem to believe in. And, and it has very little to do with with the reasons that come to your mind why your position is correct and the position of the other side is nonsensical. And we take the reasons that people give for their actions and beliefs and our own reasons for actions and beliefs much too seriously. Right, and we duel with them when we're and we're not yeah. actually talking and about... And it's a game. Mm-hmm. Because even if you did destroy the arguments for, that right. people raise for their beliefs. It wouldn't change their beliefs. They would just mm-hmm. find other arguments. Yeah. You still have the so same human drama. That's, you know, that's a perspective um, which uh, is saddening in some ways, but it's about what happens in, in the world of ideas and in the world of politics, uh, that we have a lot of illusions about the role of our 
reasons, mm-hmm. and I mean reasons plural, about the role of reasons in our beliefs and decisions. It's smaller than we think. Yes, and you know, something that comes up a lot in in your work and in as people write about you is, you know, you one of the things you're arguing on the basis of what I would say is your deep, you know, profoundly reality-based approach to us um, is that if we if we kind of accepted that there's a lot that's incomprehensible um, and unreasonable, um, that we would be surprised less of the time. Um, and one one feature um, of the present, I feel, uh, politically and on other levels, is everybody's constantly whiplashed, and I'm I'm it, it's it's not that is not very rational to me. I was thinking about that as I as I was reading you. Uh, what. What is it that you find not rational? That that we have a, a, a set of we have a complicated dynamic that has been before us for a while and been deepening, um, and yet I feel that people are constantly surprised by it over and over again. Well, you know. My perspective on this is that we're really not surprised nearly often enough (laughs) because one of the things that that really happen, as soon as an event occurs, Mm -hmm. we have a story. That's automatic. That system one generates stories. It looks for causes, it looks for stories, and it generates its tentative stories that if endorsed by system two become beliefs and opinions. So... That's automatic, and it happens immediately. You know, Trump gets elected, and it begins to seem inevitable. You know, we're looking for the mistakes that were made that made this possible and so on. But the speed at which we find explanations for things that happened makes it difficult for us to learn the deep truth. Mm. And the deep truth is that the world is much more uncertain than we feel it is. Mm -hmm. We see a version of the world that is simplified and, and yeah, just a lot simpler and a lot more certain than the world really is. So that's, that's the way I would talk about. And notice, in, in our conversation, you are using the word rational much more often than I. Mm-hmm. Because in a way, you are, when people use the word rational, I think, what they mean by this is that there is a good reason for what you believe and what you do. If there is a good reason for what you believe and what you do, then you are rational. But if we accept that in general, uh, our more important beliefs are not rooted in arguments, that there is no good reason for why we have this religion or that religion or this politics or that politics. It's just something that happened to us. Uh, that that changes the nature. We're, we shouldn't be looking for rationality so much because by using the word, we seem to expect it to happen. And, and I think that's just not the way the mind works. Yeah, I, I appreciate you pointing that out, too, because actually I also feel like the word rational carries a, a, judge, a sense of judgment, right? 
that ration, whatever that I would say what is rational, and you would somebody else would say what is rational, and I don't actually know that it's a word I use as much. I think I may be using it just coming out of this preparation for you, and probably as much <laughs> about what other people write about you. I'm realizing as what you write. I mean, I think I would use the word logical, and one of the things I've been saying a lot to people in conversations in this last political year is we're not logical creatures and trying to you know being mad at uh, the other side for not being logical is is just not a good use of your rational brain i don't know it is not because Mm -hmm. you know you do not appear rational to them yeah and and the fact that arguments that feel irrefutable come to our mind so easily uh, doesn't mean that those arguments are the re- cause of our beliefs and doesn't mean much of anything about the validity of the argument. The way that the mind works very frequently is that we start from a decision or we start from a belief and then the stories that explain it mm. come to our mind. And the the sequence that we have when we think about when we think about thinking, that arguments come first and conclusions come later, that sequence is often reversed. Conclusions right. come first and rationalizations come later. But isn't it interesting that, you know, again, I mean, the, the, the discipline, or at least the ideal, idealized discipline of politics or political science, you know, the way we think you have a debate Right. And then you come to, you know, and then somehow the best idea will appear, will appear right to everyone. <laughs> and and that's not, in fact, the way, as you're saying, that's not even the way our brains work. Much no. less the way our political process works anymore. No, it, it is not. I mean, I, I had an experience recently that is that I found illuminating from that point of view. I was approached by two reputable scientists you know, people who have distinguished careers in science and who are climate change deniers. They don't believe in climate change. And in fact, they view the people who do believe in climate change as sort of lemmings who follow the the herd or uh, were not thinking. Serious people, they think, they feel, uh, would would not be so worried about climate change. Now, the interesting thing is that they got in touch with me because they were hoping that I might help them develop a way of convincing people of the correctness of their position. Now, interestingly enough, uh, a few years ago, I gave a talk at the National Academy of Sciences, the point of which was that if we have a two-system brain, the kind of brain, the kind of mind that I'm describing, then... We shouldn't expect people to be convinced by evidence. Scientists should just relax, and they should accept the fact that there are many ways of knowing and that using evidence to prove what you know, this is what is done in a particular religion that we call science. But in other religions, the practices of you know, what it means to know are completely different. Yeah. And that's true, I think, both for people who believe in climate change and for people who deny it. Uh, 
except maybe there are some scientists who do objective, you know, who do the objective work and interpret it one way or the other. But for most of us, uh, we believe in this or we believe in that because we believe in people who have those beliefs. I happen to believe, you know, the consensus of the National Academy of Sciences. What do I know about climate change? Yeah. Yeah. Right, and there's also this corollary. I mean, this is all connected with of the the religion of facts, right? And you could say the the, the journalistic religion of facts that if you just present the right facts and if that facts. But I I feel that in some ways also the crisis we have of facts and truth is also a reflection of this reality of us that you know yeah. that you have articulated that is just kind of very much out there on the surface of our life together in a new way. Um, you know, that, that a fact, however important facts are, and they are, a fact is not the same thing as a deep truth. Absolutely. I mean, certainly, you know, what is happening in the United States in the last uh, six months is, you know, it's really a testimony to that sort of process. You have people on the left... You know, probably, possibly the majority of the country, certainly, you know, the people that Donald Trump calls elites. And they cannot believe what they see in the polls every week, which is that behaviors that appear to them to be crazy and, you know, worse than crazy, have absolutely no effect on the popularity of the president Mm -hmm. among a group of his supporters. The, you read the New York Times yeah. and you feel that everybody who writes there cannot make their peace with the fact that, you know, the support is stable. Right, that's what I mean. They're always surprised by the same as, thing over and over yeah. and over again. Shocked. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, why don't they change their mind? And the reason they don't change their mind is that they believe in Donald Trump and fake news are not going to change their mind. Mm-hmm. And facts are fake news. And, you know, one of Donald Trump's assistants says, well, there are facts and there are facts, (laughs) words to that effect. Facts don't matter, or they matter much less than than people think. And and people on both sides believe that there are facts that support them. But those beliefs should not be taken too seriously. So so how would you... um you know, reflect on what you know about how our brains work, fast thinking, slow thinking, systems one, system two. Like what, and I know you're going to be, this is going to be a humble answer and that, 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 that there's, that it's, it's probably, you know, only modestly that we can really change ourselves in a moment like this. But, but how does what we know about ourselves, what you know about us, you know, how, how might it be helpful in us stepping back looking at the way we're reacting, the way, you know, we're reading how journalists are covering things. Look, I mean, when when you're asking that question, I'm sure you have in mind a particular ideal that you would like to, you know, educate the population so that the population would accept that ideal. Well, you know, there's a significant proportion of the population who doesn't want your ideals. And that's basic. And 
the idea, I have no, you know, I haven't thought enough whether there is something that Donald Trump could do that would shake the faith of his supporters. It's very clear that his behavior, which many other people find incomprehensibly shocking, uh, has no effect. So what would it be that would have an effect? And when you're talking of education, educating people towards a particular way of reasoning that seems logical and reasonable to you, uh, a large part of the population doesn't want your education. They right. do not want to be educated in, right. in the way that you, that you hope they will be. Yeah, and that's actually not what I'm talking about. I'm I actually I don't I'm not over oriented towards Donald Trump, um, towards President mm. Trump. I oh, am I mean, very I'm very oriented though towards the human dynamics that brought us to this political moment. Um, and I think you know my question is for people um, who are trying to trying trying would would like to be attentive to that. And I do think many people long to, but they're so we're so captive to the reactions we're having. Right, this system one. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I wonder, uh, and maybe this is just not, you know, maybe this is this is not a fruitful path to go down. But I wonder if you have thought about, like, how do you read the newspaper, and what do you do with? I, I, I doubt that you read the newspaper every morning, um, and are continually surprised by this. So, how do you think people who want to step back, who want to activate the deliberative part of their of our capacity? Um, do you have any like very practical thoughts towards that? Well, uh, you know, what is what is disappearing, or in, you know, seems to be disappearing, is a culture of of debates between diverse opinions. I mean, we mm-hmm. see the polarization at the political level. We see the polarization, you know, in the circles of people who believe in one set of news or in another and who s- strengthen each other's belief on Facebook or on Twitter on, and so on. Uh, that That is something that we see. Whether there is anything that can be done about it, I would say it's there is something that can be done. But it's primary. It's not nothing deep can mm-hmm, be done. Good. I think <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what, what can be done is superficial. Yeah. Can be very very useful. So teaching statistics to the young would be useful. Teaching economics to the young would be useful. Uh, teaching self-critical thinking, or, or better yet, how to criticize other people because this is more pleasant and more interesting. Uh, those things can be done. You could educate uh, intelligence analysts. You could educate people who feed information to decision makers to some extent to improve their product. Mm. But those are very marginal improvements. When it comes to the big issues, I'm not very optimistic. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about some of the ways you... You help us understand ourselves. That, that we, when, you, when you've talked about the experiencing self and the remembering self. So see, these are some of the dynamics that go into the contradictory way we process reality. So describe what you're talking about there. Well, um, 
to to describe this, I'll describe an experiment mm-hmm. which uh, you know was we did it and uh, and it was quite influential in my own thinking. So this is what you do: you uh, invite people to participate in an experiment, and the subject of the experiment is pain, so they know that. And you ask them to stick their hand in cold water for a while until they're told to take it out. So they all do that with their right hand, say. And there are two groups, although people don't know that they belong to their groups. Participants are randomly allocated to two conditions. In one condition, you hold your hand in cold water for 60 seconds. In another condition, you hold your hand in cold water for 60 seconds and and then for without any break for 30 additional seconds. But during the last 30 seconds of your experience, the temperature of the, of the water is raised by one degree Celsius, about two degrees Fahrenheit. And then comes the question. You ask people, you tell them, well, you've had two... Uh, oh, I'm sorry, it's not two groups, actually. It's each individual okay. has two experiences, okay. one with the left hand and one with the right hand. So some experience the 60 seconds and some the 90 seconds. And then you ask them, which of the two experiences you had with, right, with your right hand or with your left hand would you like to repeat? We're going to have a third trial. And they pick the longer one. Not they. A significant majority of people right. pick the longer one. Now, that's absurd <laughs> because the longer one contains the 60 seconds of pain that is the, that the short, short experience contains plus 30 additional seconds of diminishing pain. So it's more pain than 90 seconds, and yet people like it better. Mm. What does that mean? Mm. Well, it turns out that if you are looking at, at, at this in terms of experience, then clearly 90 seconds is worse than 60 seconds. But people don't actually store their experience in that way. They form an impression of the experience they had. And in that impression, there are two moments that play a significant role. And that's the peak of your pain and the pain at the end of the episode. Right. How it ended. And how it ends. Mm-hmm. It ends better for the 90 seconds hand than for the 60 seconds hand. Right. And that's the thing that people want to repeat. And associated with it is something that is really crazy, but it's, it's a fact. We call it duration neglect. That is, people in those kinds of situations are radically insensitive to how long the experience lasts. We've done that with actual medical experiences. So it, this translates into real-life crises. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, been tested, yeah. it's been tested with people who are having their kidney stones broken up. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, it, and it's absolutely, it works that way. It's been tested with patients having a colonoscopy, so mm-hmm. it's for real. And and there are those two moments, you know, if you track pain over time, then people who have had 20 minutes of pain 
can say that they had less, uh, a better experience than people who had five minutes of pain if the 20 minutes ended well or ended with less pain. With well, to me, the pain. classic example of that is childbirth, right? That's right. Well, <laughs> childbirth, is, childbirth is a bit complicated. In childbirth, it's, there is duration neglect in memory. I mean, you just remember that it was long, but your evaluation of the experience is very much colored by the fact that, you know, for most women, it ends well. Right. How it ended, you have this, you uh, have how this it new ended. life. Yeah. yeah. That's why mm-hmm. people have, women have more than one child. Exactly. Well, and, and you, you, you uh, correlate this, 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 this constant, this dialectic in us, or this, this between the experiencing self and the remembering self, as as part of this ongoing way, we, the past makes more sense in hindsight than it perhaps actually did, and also that we don't really recall it, that the sense we give it isn't necessarily logical, and and that yeah. that kind of gives us this illusion as we move through the world that the world in general makes sense. Um, even when it didn't make sense and hasn't ever made sense. <laughs> well, uh, you're going a bit far okay. there, further than I would. All right. Uh, the the point I was really making was that you can think of well-being, for example, mm-hmm. taking the broad concept, in two quite different ways. I mean, in one sense, well-being is something that you experience every second of your life. You are more or less happy or in a better or worse mood and you can record that continuously and that's the well-being of the experiencing self this is what you experience over time where the present counts but then there's another way of measuring well-being which is to stop people and to ask them to think about their life and to say whether their life is good or bad it's completely different. That's the well-being of the, ex- of the remembering self. You know, it's an act of memory and construction. Mm-hmm. People reconstruct it. And, and the two are quite different. What determines experienced well-being and what determines sort of remembered life evaluation or global life evaluation are quite different things. What determines the happiness of the experiencing self is very largely social. It's spending a lot of time with people you love. It's very important there. What determines the life satisfaction, yeah. which is I associated with the remembering self, what determines that is quite conventional. It's whether you have been successful. So money matters much less to the remembering self than to the experiencing self for example. Hmm. Does one of these, the experiencing self or the remembering self, always trump the other? Or is that a different dynamic in any given life? No, that's the interesting part, I think. Uh, When I started out in this line of research, I started out as a strong believer that the reality of life is what the experiencing self is. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. it's what happens as you live. And I thought that's vastly more important than what people think about their life, which, after all, is a construction. And I went, to, you know, I went about defending the experienced uh, well-being uh, as, as the more important one. And eventually, 
I had to change my mind. And I had, I had to change my mind and to conclude that there is no way you can ignore remembering self mm-hmm. or life evaluation because what people want is not the well-being of their experiencing self. <sighs> what people want is more closely associated with the remembering self. It's mm. they want to have good memories. They want to have good opinions of themselves. That's they want to have a good story about their life. Mm. And though all of these things are rememberings, um, are structured as memories. And and then I concluded that you know you couldn't really defend the theory of well-being that doesn't correspond to what people want. So uh, I had to concede that both kinds of, you know, the other kind of happiness, the life satisfaction is important as well. I would say, though, in most research, experience, in much of the research, experience well-being is, it used to be completely ignored. Now I think things have improved in the last 15 years, and maybe even I had a hand in it. Hmm. Hmm. One thing you've also said is that um, if you had a magic wand, overconfidence is the thing you would banish. Would you explain that? Well, uh, and I'm, you know, I, I did say that, but I am, I'm not sure I was right. Okay. But uh, what, what I meant to say was that when you look globally at, at people's actions, uh, Overconfidence is endemic. I mean, we we have too much confidence in our beliefs. And overconfidence really is associated with a failure of imagination. When you cannot Mm -hmm. imagine an alternative to your belief, you are convinced that your belief is true. You know, that's overconfidence. And overconfidence, you know, whenever there is a war, there were overconfident generals. You know, you can look at failures and, and overconfidence had something to do with them. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, overconfident and overconfident optimism is is the engine of capitalism. I mean, you know, yeah. entrepreneurs uh, are overconfident. Mm-hmm. They think they're going to be successful. People who open restaurants in New York think <laughs> they'll succeed. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. Right. But at least two-thirds of them have to give up within a few years. More than two-thirds. Well, probably. and uh, to what's also baked into that is we reward overconfidence. Absolutely. We, we want people to be overconfident. Uh, we want our leaders to be overconfident. Yeah. Uh, to, to take an example, I think President Obama um, appeared too reflective for his own political good. Mm. That is... Intuitively, we want a leader who seems to know what he's doing, who seems to be sure, who seems to have a great deal of confidence in his gut. And if he spends a lot of time deliberating, then, you know, it seems to be, well, he doesn't know what he's doing. So, yes, we reward overconfidence, definitely, in selecting leaders and so Mm -hmm. on. And so what is that? So clearly there's that system one, system two dynamic, the gut or the, or the reflection. What is it in us that prefers 
that is that is that admires overconfidence and veers well, towards it. The overconfident person uh, exudes self-confidence. He seems very sure of what he is saying and of what he's thinking and of the correctness of what he's doing. And that is contagious. We're inclined, you know, it's, mm. it's really is almost as simple as that, that we take the confidence of other people quite often at face value, mm. and we certainly take our own confidence at face value. We think that our own confidence corresponds to how likely we are to be right. The correspondence is very weak between confidence and accuracy. Okay. That makes sense. Um, you know, I just I might we we need okay. Yeah, we I want we're gonna kind of kind of move towards the end. Just before we do, I I do <laughs> I, I do wanna come back to uh to this I mean you you you, you are you are a celebrated in the world of economics, even though you are not an economist. Um, it, it, it seems to me, I'm, I'm just constantly puzzled by, you know, one of the things you and Amos Tversky have said is that, you know, no one ever made a decision because of a number. They needed a story um, that, that were not logical actors uh, in, in any realm and certainly not in economics. One thing that's been so puzzling to me, and I think this has intensified since 2008, um, when it's just even if people don't know about behavioral economics, they know that this whole economic and landscape we're in is somehow unsteady right? <laughs> and um, tumultuous. And yet it seems to me that we're more obsessed with numbers, with dual, you know, let's do the numbers with with reporting, you know, what the market is doing hour by hour, minute by minute, even though empirically, I mean, we know that those, those, that kind of way of taking in the market is not nonsensical. And there's a huge disconnect there. And that's disconnect that seems to have been growing in recent years between what the market was telling, how the market was doing and how real people are doing or feel they are doing. Um, I'm just I'm curious about, and maybe this is not at all interesting to you, but I'm curious if how you watch this phenomenon or or how you would respond to that idea well, of mine. I'm not entirely sure of what phenomenon uh, you have in mind here. The the people who participate in in the market in the first place, they're a self-selected minority mm -hmm. of people. They're not. They're not characteristic of, you know, they're not in some sense, you know, they're not normal people, they're right. not average people. It's a self-selected minority who, yeah. who moves the world. Uh, and, and we are observers of that, most of us. Uh, but where I was going with that, I don't remember, so <laughs> guide me. Um, okay, but I mean, even that is helpful that that but because what you've just said i don't think is still the way the story of the market is presented and i'm not even sure ordinary people internalize it that way i think they think that their life should be reflected there in a way that it's not oh uh 
If you mean the stock market, yeah. uh, I'm not really sure that people believe that their life is reflected by the stock market. They have, they're told all the time that the stock market is a very important index of how the economy is doing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is something that we read all the time and, uh, and we, we tend to believe in it. Although, if we looked over time, uh, that doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah. So it it's, seems to be very surprising that the market should be rising at the same time that people say that uncertainty is rising. According to most theories, that shouldn't happen. So the dynamics of, of the market cannot be explained, I think, easily, and certainly not in psychological terms. We have that idea of the market as a person, you know, it's uh, with a character, with a disposition. The market is worried. The market is hoping. Right, the market right. is happy. I mean, all of this. Yeah. The market is not a person. It's a completely, you know, it's a different structure. And it's many people interacting. And many, and now many computers are interacting as part of the mix. And uh, it's trying to understand the psychology of the market is a futile exercise. And trying to see... Uh, how that person, the market, you know, I can learn from what, how well that person is doing to conclude or infer how well I'm doing. It's a mistake. Mm. Mm. I want to just ask you, kind of just run through a few phrases that you use, which also just feel very informative to me. Um, and they're, they're kind of, um, they're, they're, they're uh, they're not words that people use in average sentences. Attribute substitution. Um, one of the things you've said about this is people take the answer to an easy question and use it to answer a difficult question. That this is an impulse we have. Yeah. You want me to try yeah, to explain yeah, that? Yeah. Well, um, let me... You know, if I remember an example that I used, you know, in the book, which is, yeah. uh, if you are asking yourself, you know, how popular do you expect the president to be next year? There's something that you do immediately when you're asked this question, and this is to think of how well is he doing now, mm. and and very, it's very difficult to separate next year from now. Then there is uh, an experiment that had a great impact on me uh, where you ask students two questions. Um, the first question is, how happy are you? And the second one is, how many dates did you have last month? And now half of the students get the questions in this order, how happy are you? How many dates did you have last month? And you look at the correlation between those two, and it's essentially zero. Mm -hmm. Now invert the order. You first ask people, how many dates did you have last month, and how happy are you? And now the correlation you know, rises to 0.66. What that means is that when, when you ask people who have just 
thought about whether they are romantically successful or not, whether their romantic life is good or not. They're in that mood, hmm. and you ask them, how happy are you? They answer you by telling them the mood they're in. Wow. That's attribute substitution. It's taking a question, which is a very difficult question, how happy are you? And it turns it into a much simpler question, what's your mood like? Or what are you, how happy are you this instant? So, uh, and that happens all over the place. And another another uh, one of these is um, this idea of the availability heuristic. What you What you see is all there is, that we are really, really not aware of the information that we don't have. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a very difficult principle to grasp, mm-hmm. uh, this idea that actually what I don't know matters enormously, and what I can't see matters enormously. And uh, we, there are so many manifestations of this, like, for example, when something that I'm very interested in these days is how people, how much people, even experts, professional experts, disagree in their view of specific cases. So you take two in, two underwriters, and you have them estimate the same risk. And they expect each of them, if they are good professionals and they have respect for each other, will expect the other to be very much like him or her. But in fact, the differences are huge. They're much larger than people anticipate. Mm. And this is because it's very difficult for us to imagine how anyone could see the world in a way that's different from the way we see it. You know, the, this, this, the interpretation of the world imposes itself on us. And, and the idea that there are other ways of seeing it, that there are alternatives, that there are things that you do not see and they're important, that is impossible to bring to mind effectively. So we create a story. Um, we create a sense. We, ha- we, we have a sense of what is real that is just always based on impartial understanding. But we, but we then, well, we just naturally believe in it and it, and we, and it feels more whole than it is. Yeah, I think I think you got it. Mm-hmm. At least you got it. <laughs> you got my thinking about it. This mm-hmm. uh, it's not necessarily the right thinking, but um, yes, I think that mostly we go through life with the impression that we see the world as it is. Yeah. You know, uh, and mostly we don't have much doubt. Now, I'm going to tell you a story that you can either keep or drop, you know, depending on who your audience is. It yeah. will take you, me a minute, but uh, it makes a point. My wife and I uh, went, um, we had dinner with a couple of friends some years ago, and we came back and, you know, we talked, we went to bed and we talked about our experience. And, and my wife said of the man that, with whom we'd had dinner, he is sexy. And then... Immediately after that, she said something that struck me as completely bizarre. I mean, in fact, it is bizarre. She said, he doesn't undress the maid himself. (laughs) And 
I turned to her and I said, what on earth are you saying? What do you mean he doesn't undress the maid himself? Well, what she actually had said was, he doesn't underestimate himself. And I heard us, he doesn't undress the maid himself. I see. <laughs> I see. Now, you know, this, this illustrates how the mind works and it illustrates, you know, how ready you are to produce some interpretations rather than others. Yeah. But one of the striking aspects of this story was that it didn't occur to me at the time that because it was such an unlikely thing for her to have said, she hadn't said it. Right. That did not occur to me. Right. And... Uh, so because, you know, I heard it. I knew what she had said. The only question was why she had said such a crazy thing. <laughs> and and our mind works like that a lot of the time. It's a, it's a great story. Thank you for telling it. You, know, you, you mentioned the word consciousness very early on in our conversation about how connected well, all these, these systems and this thinking about fast and slow thinking and intuition, it's all somehow connected with consciousness, which we're kind of circling around in a new way in many of our disciplines, but also, I think, as aware as ever before that we don't really know what it is. But I'm, I'm curious about how you think about consciousness, how you've come to think uh, about consciousness. I have, you know, my take on consciousness is different from that of most of my colleagues, actually. I use the word, you know, to say you know, because I think it's obvious and people will agree that they are conscious of what happens when they f compute 17 and 24, but they're not conscious of what happens when they uh, say two, uh, you know, when they think four after two plus two. So I use the word in a colloquial way and, and people understand me and so on. But for the life of me, ma many people think that the question of what consciousness is is the cardinal question. I mean, I have people, philosophers think that, computer scientists think that, yeah. and they ask the question of whether artificial intelligence is going to be conscious or not. And for the life of me, I can't get excited about that question. <laughs> because, you know, when people are raising the issue of whether a robot will be conscious or not, I ask them, how on earth will you know? And if, you know, how will you know whether the robot is actually conscious or is just pretending to be conscious? Yeah. And if there is no way of knowing, uh, I don't find it very exciting. So, but, you know, I must be wrong because so many uh, brilliant people are fascinated by this question. But for some reason, I've never understood their fascination for it. Well, but I would say what you are offering is a, you are offering an operating question in the mix as we grapple with that? How, well, yeah. uh, uh, you know, I'll give you an example, which uh, I'm, I've been thinking of, about this in the context of artificial intelligence and robots. So people are raising the questions of, will very intelligent robots have rights? Yeah. Will, if robots are conscious, then they suffer. And if... And, you know, many people believe that any being that can suffer uh, 
we ought to take into account. You know, we ought to take their suffering into account. And I don't know how we will know hmm. whether, you know, what it means for a robot to suffer. A robot can indicate that it's suffering. A robot, you know, once they have facial expressions, can have a, a physical expression of intense pain. Uh, but what do we really know? I mean, all of this could be programmed, and how could you tell the difference? So uh, I'm a skeptic on consciousness, on the value of focusing very heavily on the nature of consciousness. Mm -hmm. I don't see that. I suppose there are some scientists who would, who would argue that we also, that our consciousness is programmed in, 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 in extraordinarily complex ways that we can't yet grasp. Yeah. And, and there are some philosophers who believe that, you know, only a computer that's made of meat, you know, can, can be conscious. There's only a brain can be conscious. Very serious philosophers, uh, a very serious philosopher, John Searle at Berkeley, uh, takes that position and has defended it for years. Do, uh, do you think of fast and slow thinking? Do you, well, do you mean, think do you have corollaries to that in artificial intelligence and... Oh, yes, and that's why that's part of my interest in artificial intelligence these days. The it seems to me that some of the more recent developments in artificial intelligence, uh, like for example, a program that could defeat the world champion in Go, uh, that is very interesting because Go is generally described as an intuitive game hmm. where people move without really being able to articulate exactly their reasons for the move because moves have long you know long-term consequences and so on and people develop a vague intuition not vague for for world champions it's quite precise about what is the best move now a computer simulates that and so the idea that computers can simulate Intuition uh, is something that fascinates me. Mm. And, and in a way, it raises for me the question of what does it mean to have an intelligent system one? An intelligent system one is a system one that contains an, a rich and accurate representation of the world so that you can anticipate what will happen and do that correctly and so on. That, to me, is an intelligent system one. And, and I think that what we are seeing, it used to be the case that artificial intelligence was entirely about reasoning. So it was all about system two? Was... It was mostly about system yeah. two. The difficult problems like playing Go, like recognizing faces, those are the difficult problems mm -hmm. that are now on their way to solution. They're system one problems. Hmm. And so... That's, that I find very exciting. You know, you're, you're very um, cautious about, um, you know, the application of what you understand um, to how we might change the world. But I, I, I'm, I, I like, I'm very much drawn to some ways you've talked about, you know, nuancing the, the virtue of not, not changing your mind but thinking again as, as, as perhaps something that's more 
achievable for us. Do, do you know what well, about that distinction? Can you just talk about how you think how that what that distinction is for you? Well, you know, when you're thinking, uh, the context I, I tend to be very concrete in my thinking. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for me. For example, a good question is how would you improve the thinking of analysts at the CIA? So, okay. you know, what is what would it mean to to improve their thinking and how would you do it? And I'm I'm not inclined to believe that you can train people to debias themselves. Okay. I think that's difficult. But I think it's probably much easier and or at least it could be feasible, to train people to detect biases in other people's thinking. Because when you are thinking for yourself, you're too busy making the mistake to, to recognize that you're making a mistake. An observer with less stake in the thinking and less involved in the process of generating the mistake uh, may be more likely to discover it. So developing critical thinking, not in the sense of criticizing yourself, but in the sense of criticizing other people, real criticism, may be a a good way to go. At least that's the way I would be inclined to go at the moment. But I think what you mean when you say that is so utterly different from, you know, the way we criticize each other (laughs) in, in political life or in cultural life now. I think there's so much nuance to what you're saying that's that might not immediately occur with those words. Yeah, I mean the the way uh, you know there there are various ways of criticizing somebody's position or somebody's beliefs. I, I was talking about a specific type of critique, mm-hmm. and it's a critique that is based on understanding of the biases to which thinking is prone and the conditions under which uh, those biases are most likely to occur. Mm-hmm. And there is rich knowledge in this, but you know, in the 40 years since, uh, more than 40 years, uh, soon 50 years, since Amos Tversky and I uh, wrote about this, no, uh, it's 40 years. Um, in, in all those years, not, not a lot has been achieved in debiasing. Right. It's mostly, you know, we, there isn't much. There are some people who have claimed that they can do it, but have they really trained the way intuition works or have they really enabled people to find the correct solutions to problem in completely new contexts, which is the proper test? I'm, I'm a skeptic. I, I feel like I agree with you, and I do feel like the, the one thing that may have changed in recent years is just that we see the that bias is present that 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 reality that is more undeniable on the surface of our life together not that we necessarily know what to do with that reality uh, you know you you bring to mind uh, something that I'm very concerned with these days. In fact, I'm sort of, in a a desultory way, I'm trying to write a book about it Mm -hmm. with a colleague. And this is the idea that we very much overuse the term bias. 
you know, when I started my career, you mentioned the word error, and the association would be random or motivated or Freudian error. That's, you know, 50, 60 years ago, that's how people thought about error. Now you mention error, people are very likely to say, what's the bias that caused it? Mm. But in fact, it need not be a bias. A lot of error is random, and there is a radical underestimation of the amount of random error in people thinking. Mm. And I, I would like to restore the balance because I think our work, uh, Tversky's and mine, uh, was in a sense too influential. It led people to exaggerate the importance of bias in in human affairs and in human thinking, but there are many other ways in which people go wrong than biases. And I suppose you're suggesting also that if that if we took that in, that that just that distinction um, makes it would make every it would make um, us just that much that random is not always motivated and malicious. Uh, Do you feel like the word bias is so much more charged and that it charges things on top of... Certainly that's the case, Mm -hmm. but also the the fascinating thing about uh, random error, what I call noise, is that it's invisible, that we're not aware of it. You know, we found, uh, we studied an insurance company and we found that underwriters really didn't agree among themselves to... I would say almost a catastrophic degree in what premium they should assess. I mean, to the the point, they would disagree so much that you wondered why the company bothered to use underwriters. Because, you know, if if underwriters are not interchangeable, then what's the use of them? They should be almost entirely interchangeable. And they differ, and their difference is noise. And that very that this is a problem which reduces the accuracy and actually reduces the bottom line of the organization. That problem is invisible to the organization. Nobody knew it existed until we pointed it out. That's that's my passion these days. Okay. Um. This. This capacity we have to think again, um, good, you know, to do better thinking, um, but very incrementally. Um, I mean, you you have in a couple of places in our conversation mentioned, you know, that something a place where you have changed your thinking, and I, um, I, I, I wonder. Um, I'm, I'm curious about that, about you know how you how you, and perhaps you've been speaking to that now, but how you're. Your thinking is evolving, even as we speak, and 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 kind of within that, um, you know, this this interest you had early in life about, um, I think, your own way of coming in at the question of the human condition. Um, how is there is there evolution uh, in in that in that way in in a way you think about that reflect on that? Well, you know, my. I I have been shifting positions all my life. Mm. I like changing my mind, and I, I look for ways of changing my mind. Uh, and, you know, this is what I'm doing now in questioning the importance of biases. But, um, 
you know, but as I said, I don't believe... I'm certainly less smart than I was when I was younger. I mean, you know, I'm in my 80s, so... Uh, but it's not only that. I haven't become more sensitive to biases. I, I really haven't improved my thinking in, in any way, I think. Uh, and if I have, it's accumulating experience. It's not... Uh, it's it's not by learning, you know, better ways to think. <laughs> um, well, what are, where where is your thinking evolving now? Where what 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 are you what are you? Is there anything you're in the midst of changing your mind about? As yeah, I'm I'm really in the midst of that noise project. Okay, that's a project that's very interesting to me. I'm in involved in a project about improving reasoning. Uh, which I interpret as improving the ability to criticize other people's thinking. Mm -hmm. And so those are the two main projects I'm involved with at the moment. I do other things, but those are the main two. Well, I think um, especially that that letter, um, giving, creating some tools or even some reflection around reasoning in that way um, is certainly much needed. So I'm um, very glad that you are in the world uh, thinking and offering these ideas up to us. And it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you very much. You're a penetrating interviewer. It was a pleasure. Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Okay, you're all set. That was hard work. (laughs) She had some questions for you. I enjoyed it.